This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. I'm your host, Jerry Jensen, filling in for low-res Wonderbread to discuss the Robert Rodriguez film, Desperado. I was visiting a bar, and in he walked. You saw his face? His face? No. I mean, every step he took towards the light, just when you thought his face was about to be revealed, it wasn't. It was as if the lights dimmed just for him. They called him a loner. I know who you are. Really? You killed drug dealers. They killed the woman I loved. They ruined my life. They called him a miss. You've heard stories of that man that carries a guitar case full of weapons. Find him and kill him. I hope you don't think you can take someone like Ucho all by yourself. Really? They made the mistake of calling his bluff. Is there something in the guitar case? A guitar? No. It's time to face the music. Let's play. The 1995 action thriller starring Antonio Banderas, Selma Hayek, and Joaquin Del Almeida was Rodriguez's second full-length film, coming off the accidental success of the director's first entry in 1993, El Mariachi, a film that he made for just $7,000 and one that surprised critics and audiences at film festivals. Now, given a budget of $7 million, Robert Rodriguez had intended on making Desperado the English-language remake of El Mariachi, choosing the name El Pistolero for the film. But he changed the name when he was convinced by Quentin Tarantino to make the film a sequel and the second in a trilogy. He'd then take his larger budget to get well-known Spanish actor Antonio Banderas, who had already received multiple Spanish award nominations for his previous roles, and Joaquin Del Almeida, who had starred in a number of Spanish-speaking films but had also recently broken into the U.S. market with his 1994 role in the Harrison Ford film A Clear and Present Danger. Hayek, on the other hand, although fairly popular at the Mexican market, coming off of popular Telenova Teresa, was a relative unknown in the U.S. market and the studio pushed back against Rodriguez casting her in the film. However, he persisted, and it proved to be the right casting choice, as Hayek and Banderas had remarkable on-screen chemistry. The success and exposure from Desperado would boost Hayek's career, earning her a Best Supporting Actress nomination, and in the following year, it led to her being cast in a number of very popular films, including Rodriguez and Tarantino's wildly popular From Dusk Till Dawn. Then, after spending money on his main actors and cameos, including cameos by Cheech Marin and Steve Buscemi, who had to have their scenes shot in a short period of time because of the price of their cameos, Rodriguez would return to his guerrilla filmmaking tactics, choosing against hiring a storyboard artist and more extras, and instead staged scenes like the bar shootouts before filming, and came up with his blocking and choreography on the fly. Even casting members of his crew as armed patrons of the bar meant to die by the hand of El Mariachi. They would say that casting members of his crew boost morale and help the filmmaking process move smoothly. It's these guerrilla filmmaking tactics and his attention to the morale of his crew that would turn Robert Rodriguez into a directing legend. His ability to take very little amounts of money and get a very good product out of it is something that filmmakers for years would look to for inspiration. The plot of Desperado is pretty straightforward. We follow El Mariachi on a revenge-fueled rampage to hunt down the drug kingpin Bucho, 
the man responsible for the death of his wife. We see flashbacks of El Mariachi leaned over his deceased wife in some kind of courtyard, and then a scene of him getting shot in the hand. And these are remade scenes from El Mariachi, not actual scenes from El Mariachi. And in fact, there's not enough information in the film to even suggest that it's a sequel. And I think most people, myself included, come out of it thinking that it's a standalone film. Anyways, the film has no shortage of cool gunfights, and each death is a wonderfully graphic death with huge blood splatter flying through the air and nameless faceless Mexican henchmen getting mowed down by El Mariachi's very cool arsenal of guns. To get the blood effects in the film, Rodriguez decided to use a spray gun filled with fake blood rather than exploding squibs like every other film. And this created such a realistic blood effect at the time that the MPAA initially decided the film would receive an NC-17 rating. And an NC-17 rating meant that some theaters weren't going to show the film at all. So Rodriguez decided to edit out several scenes in including one that featured the cock and ball revolver later seen in 1996's From Dusk Till Dawn. Now, there are moments in the film where the blood effects aren't great. In particular, the almost comical death of Danny Trejo's character, Navajas, this black vest-wearing assassin that uses throwing knives to kill. Interestingly enough, they only have to go about an inch inside of your chest to completely kill you instantly. I think they figured out that the blood effect didn't look very good on Trejo's bare skin and elected to just shoot him in the vest. And as a result, we see one of Bucho's goons shooting a fully automatic Uzi, then cut to Danny Trejo only getting shot in three very specific spots over and over again. It's the one time that the editing doesn't do enough to save the scene. There are a few continuity errors in the film, but it's very obvious that they're edited around in order to get the best take, and they don't necessarily ruin the film at all. In between all the gunfights that go on in the film, there's several. There are scenes of El Mariachi bonding with the young boy over guitar. He teaches him a few chords, shows him how to strum the strings, and in fact, the opening scene of Antonio Banderas playing with his mariachi band, Antonio Banderas does in fact play the guitar and sing the song. The recordings of him playing are real recordings of him playing. He teaches some of his skills to the young man, and later on discovers that the boy is smuggling drugs inside of his guitar for Bucho. This is a point of contention for El Mariachi at one point in the film. So just after he initially speaks with the young boy, Selma Hayek's character enters the scene. And and she's so hot that drivers on the road are crashing into each other while checking her out. She saves our hero after a gunfight that he's injured in. And it's revealed that very conveniently, the bookstore she owns is also a drug smuggling front for Bucho. And then she learns that El Mariachi is out to kill Bucho. When Bucho arrives at the bookstore, she lies about knowing who El Mariachi is. And not long after... After that, El Mariachi and Carolina have sex, and Antonio Banderas and Selma Hayek have a sex scene that goes on for way too long and features some very awkward kissing. At one point, Hayek puts the whole of Antonio Banderas' chin in her mouth, and later Banderas is licking behind her knee and the top of her calves. It's very strange. Rodriguez said that the entire crew showed up on set to watch the scene, which leads me to believe that Banderas and Hayek may have actually just had sex on set and everybody knew they were going to have sex on set and nobody was going to miss an opportunity to watch that. But the chemistry from the scene was so much that Banderas and Hayek would receive a Best Kiss nomination from the 1995 MTV Movie Awards. And soon after the sex scene, Bucho's men show up. Another gunfight ensues and the bookstore is burned down. But it's from here on out, 
that the movie is kind of cartoony. As El Mariachi calls his two mariachi friends, and we set up for the big showdown where Bucho's men and the mariachis are going to have this face-off in the desert, we see the mariachis have guitar cases that they've turned into a functioning machine gun and a, a working rocket launcher that are both very fucking cool. Very cool weapons. Two of the coolest weapons in film. But the mariachis dispatch their enemies in a matter of seconds and, and the fight's over. And the scene is coupled with this horrible, horrible song called White Train by Tito and Tarantula. It sounds like the mariachi version of a royalty-free ACDC cover. And it saps away all the tension from the final fight in the film. Later, the climax ending, the standoff between Bucho and El Mariachi, also feels like it's missing an actual climax. As we see El Mariachi with his hands up, totally surrounded by Bucho's men, the same scene that we have seen in flashbacks before. And then he slides his two handguns out from his, his sleeves, the hidden handguns that El Mariachi keeps in there, turns and guns down Bucho. Now in this scene, we see Bucho take a few shots and fall to the ground. And right as Bucho's men lift their weapons to begin to, to, to shoot back at El Mariachi, we cut to El Mariachi and fade to white. We don't see the gunfight at all. The next scene, everything is okay. The hero rides off into the sunset with the girl. Roll credits. For a film as action-packed as this film is, uh, with a fairly interesting plot, it feels very anticlimactic to get to this final showdown and fade to white. The film did very well in the box office, making $25 million on its $7 million budget, and beat out films like Lords of Illusion and Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Hyde the weekend of release. No surprise there. But Robert Ebert would say of the film, Watching Desperado, I was pleased again and again by setups, camera angles, lighting effects, editing rhythms, and the fanciful staging of action scenes. But I never for a moment cared about the characters, and the plot was all too conveniently structured. Just a guideline to the action. In the first film, El Mariachi was fighting desperately for his life against unknown odds. And honestly, I agree with him. The stakes of Desperado never feel real. And other than our three main characters, nobody else matters. None of the deaths have any weight on them. And even the death of El Mariachi's one friend, Steve Buscemi, that is the character's name, it doesn't really feel like it impacts the story much. The only real threat to a quote-unquote good guy, comes from the little drug mule kid getting injured in one of the final gunfights. But these issues aside, the film is very enjoyable. The cast all perform well, the editing is crisp and well thought out, and the action, for the most part, is a fun mixture of graphic and exciting. But more than anything, watching this film in 2019 is refreshing. The passion of the director, cast, and crew is noticeable in every frame of this film hire a storyboard artist he's making your shots and your camera angles and in a lot of ways directing your movie for you so to avoid that if you can draw do your own boards if you can't draw this alternate method i'm beginning to use more of uh, in a lot of ways i like it better it's video storyboards i'll take a video camera to a location even if it wasn't finished with the actor with a dp with anyone else who might gain anything from it and actually show them the camera angles you're going to do. And there's never a moment where you think that someone was cutting corners or phoning it in. While movies like Black Panther and Fast and Furious get hundreds of millions of dollars to put out half-assed fight scenes that are 90% digital with actors that couldn't give a shit about the quality of the film, it's refreshing as hell to watch a movie from 24 years ago that has practical effects and that holds up as well as Desperado does. This one gets a definite recommend from me. That wraps up this episode of Movies. 
I've been your guest host, Jerry Jensen. You can follow me on Twitter at mulatto underscore Jesus. Check out my podcast ratings. And remember to check out the Low Res Wonder Bread Patreon to contribute to more great content like this. I completely just ignore any sort of trends and any consideration of what the people who watch might think. It's just my own unfiltered opinions about things. And that seems to resonate surprisingly. Um, but I mean, one of the one of the pitfalls you can get into is that if you get in with a set, right, if you fall into a niche or a community, as they like to call it, that's not of your own making, then a lot of the people who will come to you by way of recommendations from other people will come to you with this expectation that you're going to feed them the same sort of material they get from that other person. So like I used to be friends with Sargon of Akkad, right? Back before he turned into this creature of a uh, human. An important politician of the UK is what I hear. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, or you could also say abject shit show, but, um, but I mean, you know, so like I had a, I, had this rise in followers that came from that anti-SJW kind of edgelord set. And then when I backed away from that, realizing, like, okay, yeah, it's fun, but I don't really believe it as much as the rest of these people, and my thinking is evolving on things, realizing that you can get more done if you talk to people rather than talk at them. And that doesn't resonate with those audiences. But at the same time, uh, I can take my slowly withering channel and my very low view count and i can compare that to uh the patreon support i get and at the moment so you can take a creator like kraut and t who i used to be friends with that kid was like 100 and i think he had like 110,000 subscribers at his peak and he was getting tens and 20s and 30s of thousands of views on his video and uh he still has those numbers but uh, like i've got considerably more in the way of dedicated support and not just not just in terms of like yeah it's more money but specifically people are paying for that content because they believe in it and i'll ask them like hey who wants their rewards and they'll most of them will just be like shut the fuck up and make more videos please so it's that kind of when you get that hardcore dedicated audience yeah it might not grow like you might like it but then you have to ask yourself are you making content that matters to you and hoping it resonates with people or are you just trying to, you know, showboat and sell out and be a star? And I think people maybe get lost on that because isn't that the general idea of why a lot of people are doing this to begin with? Is to be able to mm. make uh, a living or at least get some kind of financial security out of something that they enjoy doing. Now, that's not to say that having a wide reach is not important. I think there are moments where you absolutely have to... Uh, you know, cast that net and hopefully draw in new people. But on the whole, the engagement is absolutely what is going to matter more in the long run than the simple number. Because it's, well, I mean, to get that number though, like you can't, I mean, something that frustrates me about YouTube and like, at least in the sort of cerebral sections where we're talking about current events and news and politics and philosophy and all ideology 
is that what you see a lot of what blows up, right? And even some which transcends into more conventional media, because we've got some right-wing YouTubers now who are like Fox News darlings, is that it's that it, it's it, it's always a race to the lowest common denominator. So whether you're from like the political left or political right, it's your propagandizing effectively, which really, if it works, whereas you take a channel like my friend Gary Edwards, the guy's a professor of philosophy and brilliant guy, um, really easy to talk to too. And he lays things out and it can be a little wonky, but when you listen, you can follow and you know what he knows he's talking about. Nobody gives a shit. Like they want, they want owning and crushing and blood sports and all that garbage. Mm -hmm. And so you see a lot of people fall into that trap where they, they, they recognize that they need to be brash and bold and sometimes shitty and sometimes stupid because that's what the masses want. Well, they I want their bread and circuses. I and think you see that them give into it and it destroys them sometimes. Oh, I was going to say, I think by getting involved in that, you put an expiration date on yourself because the type of following you are cultivating is one that enjoys downfalls Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's very simple. And this happens, <clears throat> I think, with all of these people's audiences. Uh, they will watch your downfall and just hop on to the next guy who's doing the same thing as you or who, t- who took you down. It's a it's a kind of mutated version of like the old media version of that, because, I mean, you know, you take a you, you take a you take an actor, right? Really talented actor, good actor, does a lot of good work. And when they blow up into a mega celebrity. Like, for every Keanu Reeves who manages to basically skirt the public eye whenever possible, he does as much press as he needs to. And then the rest of the time, like, you know, there's no meltdown. People just like him because he appears to be a really good guy and they like his work. For every one of those, you know, you've got a hundred, I don't know, Mel Gibsons, right, Uh, who, you know, they, they get rich, they get famous. Everything gets to their head real too quick, real too strong, and they either go fucking nuts, they go, you know, they go the, the um, what was that, uh, what was the girl from uh, Mean Girls there who, uh, Lindsay, Lindsay Lohan. Lohan, yeah, yeah, you either go, yeah, you either, they go Lindsay Lohan, and they just lose the plot, but they fail to realize that that's a bad thing, because they're still getting all that attention, they just don't realize it's not good attention, and when, when fame hits a person, it takes a very particular kind of individual, I think, to be able to withstand the allures and the trappings of that kind of shit and maintain themselves in a professional, productive manner. So would you say then that the, the YouTube creator who takes off, that's just a more expediated version? Because it seems like every year we have a new class of individuals who are the hot thing as far as uh, you know commentary or comedy or whatever it might be that is occupying the YouTube space at that time. And then like clockwork, they're flushed out uh, because either, you know, this community is devouring. It's a, uh, you know, the, the heads of it or, or they're attacking one another, or maybe or, people or just get bored of them. They, that, that happens. Burnout can happen. I think another thing that can happen is there are some creators. Like you look at the, the, if you look at like the Logan Jake Paul style bloggers where it's just like, what's up, bros? I'm totally rich. And like, hey, how's it going? Merch, merch, merch. Those kind of guys. Well, like it started out as that kind of base level obnoxious shit. And then for every controversy that they came across, right, they realized that that can be part of their brand. And so they push that more. But even when you compare that to somebody like Andy Worski, who 
you know, had this meteoric rise, right? But when he started noticing that him being a shit show was getting him more attention, he failed to realize what that would do both to his name and legacy, but also to him as a person. And it, it, it fucking eats away at people. And I think part of the problem with it too is that unlike Hollywood, like unlike the film or TV industries or the music industry, right? There is no real like support structure. There's no guidance, right? Like who the fuck is like a YouTuber's manager? What are they going to do? They're going to encourage them to make splashes with controversies and being jackasses because that gets the views and the clicks and knowing that they can cash out and move on to the next one. Um, and these are like ordinary people who have and oftentimes like no media training. You mentioned Sargon was a big political figure, right? The reason that was such a shit show is having worked in politics for over like for nearly 10 years as I have, I can say that if you're going to be the face of a movement, if you're going to be out there in front like that, you need to know exactly what you're doing. You can't just go, you know, like shitting it up and shitlording, edgelording all over the place because that's not what the masses, the mass audiences. You know, that's actually a fantastic point that I think we should get into just real quick is for people who are so enamored with the idea of putting their face out there, having their ideas or or their views espoused on this platform, a, a good portion don't really seem to care about the perception of things. No, it's well, it's because all they see is numbers, and especially, you know, in in conventional media, as a personality or a celebrity or a performer, right? So you have to deal with bookers, you have to deal with managers, agents, you have to deal with an entire infrastructure, like an apparatus, which reflects the the judgment to you right away. They want to make sure they don't fuck up. They want to make sure that like this act, this comedian that they're gonna book for this televised gig isn't going to be a bombing shit show, right? Or be a, like overburdened with controversy. But if you're doing it on YouTube, if you're doing it in this new media environment, you're doing it from your living room. You don't have anybody telling you, oh, you shouldn't say that. Oh, you shouldn't do that. You know, and yeah, okay, on the one hand, you do get a more genuine kind of raw brand presentation in that way. But at the same time, the, the pitfalls just multiply and get deeper and deeper, especially the bigger you get. And so it's, you know, it's for all the people out there who are like, and we see this on YouTube especially, but in general, like the new media, which everyone's supposed to be celebrating. Like, we're so, we're so hardwired now to hate anything that's called conventional media that people seem to sort of reflexively celebrate anything you can class as new media and everyone who's in that is like, yeah, yeah, okay, let's not give, you know, think not for tomorrow in this case. Well, I think new media is an all-encompassing term because, yeah, it, to one extent, it does cover those mindless streamers who are maybe uh, not very thoughtful in what they say or do uh, in order to get some kind of monetization from or super chats or whatever it might be. But it also does cover, I think the spectrum of what we were talking about before with streaming, with smaller companies selling off their, their products to these bigger distributors. I, I, I mean, it's a very vast term, I, I would say, in its definition. Oh, yeah. And extremely, like, I mean, to call it complex or intricate doesn't even scratch the surface of it. And I think part of the problem is, is because it's new territory, a lot of people are jumping in feet first. And not giving the adequate amounts of thought as to where things could go, how they could play, 
you know, there are some folks who've done a really good job of pivoting and managing their careers in this sense. You got um, like Lacey Green, who's a friend of mine. Funny enough, again, this is like a feminist I used to bag on back in my little edgelord days when I didn't think too hard about things. And I count Lacey as like a good friend of mine now. And, you know, she had an MTV show that she was doing for a while, and she kind of walked away from that because that's not what she's really passionate about. And she does YouTube from time to time. But a sort of behind-the-scenes thing, at least in the sort of commentary world, is a lot of people right now, a lot of people, are burned out and just don't want to do it. Like, they don't want to do this shit anymore. It's just this is what they've got. You know, it pays the bills, keeps them flush. They do have some fun. Uh, but you know, and I'm not gonna name names, but let's just say like a number of the people who've who've traditionally sort of been in what you might consider the circles I traveled in, in private conversation, you'll hear so many of them just saying, "I don't want to fucking do this anymore." Like it's giving me fucking anxiety just to try and think about what do I got to do next. It's because you know they're a one one man band in that sense, or the environment itself is just so full of bullshit between. Mass media trying to attack YouTube and get rid of the ads and all that. YouTube pivoting to being more like a Netflix MTV hybrid on its own. And there's just so much for an ordinary person to try and keep up, keep up with when typically all they really want to do is just sit on camera and maybe make jokes or comment about things. That burnout is – it's not just Philly DeFranco saying, oh, all of this attention that these big YouTubers – fuck those people. Fuck the millionaires. Like you want to talk about real burnout – Talk about the person who grinds at it just to either get the bills paid or grinds at it just because they really enjoy it and they want to keep enjoying it, but there's so many reasons not to. 